you have your Bibles, please open to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 36. And when you find that place, I want you to notice that this is a text of doxology. This is a doxology that is found in Romans 11. The word doxology means a word of glory. Doxa means glory, logos means word, so this is a word of praise or a word of glory. So Paul here in Romans 11, as we read the text, we're going to see that Paul just is overwhelmed and he breaks out into praise and worship, glorifying God in Christ. Now the question is, why does Paul break from his flow of thought in Romans just to worship? Why does he lay pen aside and begin just being overwhelmed with a heart of worship? And the answer is found this way. For 11 chapters in Romans, Paul has been rehearsing the gospel. He's been rehearsing what all of life is really about. Paul has explained how sinners, whether Jews or Gentiles, can be made right with God Though they have broken his commands, though they have believed a lie, and though they have exchanged uh, the glory of God and chosen to worship created things rather than the creator. That's Romans 1 and 2. And then from there, Paul has explained that God, instead of pouring out his wrath on us in an instant, out of his patience and mercy and grace, he has chosen to send his own son, Jesus, our Messiah, to take our sin and punishment upon himself on the cross, Jesus died and rose again for our justification according to the promises he made to Abraham. That's Romans 3 through 5. And now by faith, we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, Romans 6 and 7. And we no longer live under the law, but we live by the Spirit who has been given to us not because of our family history, not because of our education, not because of our national identity, but because of faith in Christ. That's Romans 8. And this faith in Christ, here's the great news, this faith in Christ is now what makes us children of God and heirs of the promises made to Abraham. And God's promises to Israel haven't failed, no they find their fulfillment in Christ. Because in Christ and through Christ, all of the nations will be blessed as they come to Him by faith. And this is why we've been sent with the gospel to the nations so that they too can become a part of God's people, not by blood, not by human descent, not by human effort or works, but by the Spirit. That's Romans 9 through 11. And so, what, Paul, what brings Paul to worship is that he has contemplated in the first 11 chapters of Romans all of time, all of human history, all of eternity, all of justification and salvation by grace, the impetus behind missions, and all things culminating in a new heavens and new earth when we will stand in God's presence beholding His glory forever according to His grace and mercy found in Jesus. Now that is a vast and expansive vision. 
So Paul takes all of that in, and he just breaks down in worship. F.L. Goddard, a commentator, he gives this illustration of what's happening here in Romans 11. He says this, Like a traveler who has reached the summit of an alpine ascent, the apostle turns and contemplates. Depths are at his feet, but waves of light illuminate them, and there spreads all around an immense horizon, which his eye can scarcely take in. It's like Paul is theologically standing on Mount Everest, and he's looking out in awe and wonder at the majesty and splendor of God over all of time and space. And he is awestruck, awestruck at what he sees. He can only fall down and worship. And that is my title this morning, The Wonder, Wonder and Worship. Wonder and Worship. I want to begin with an extended quote here in just a second. But what I want you to see is that Paul is moving here in Romans chapter 11. He is moving from theology to doxology. From what he believes to a heart being overwhelmed in worship. From the principles of God to the praise of God. He is being moved by the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, and the glory of God. And what I want to argue today is this should be the normal experience for believers. Wonder and amazement at who God is and what He has done should have a prominent place, a dominant place in the mind and heart of the believer. We were made to be, to, we were made for wonder and amazement. Of course, I'll get to this later, but the essence of sin is being amazed at lesser things. We should be amazed at the goodness, grace, and glory of God. Now here I want to ask you a question before I give a quote. Have you ever thought about why? Have you ever thought about why you were so attracted and mesmerized by beauty? Have you ever thought about that? Seeing the sunrise over the ocean. Watching the night sky with the moon and the stars. Looking out over the Grand Canyon or standing amongst the redwoods. Walking a mountain trail in the cool of the morning with the sun bursting through the trees, glistening off every tree and every stone. Listening to Beethoven or Bach or Mozart or the simple singing of a mockingbird in the, in the backyard while you sit on your porch. All of those things are reflections of the glory of God. But those things are not God. The right knowledge of God allows us to enjoy those things without worshiping those things. Now God intends, hear me, God intends us not just to be amazed at His creation, to be, but to be amazed and filled with the wonder of who He is. He is the one who is altogether lovely, altogether beautiful, altogether glorious. There is no one that can compare to Him in beauty and glory and majesty. And the reason we are not filled with wonder and awe and delight in worship stems from an insufficient view of God in our hearts and minds. We do not see Him or know Him or think of Him the way that we should. 
And so here's my quote. This is from The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. So listen carefully. Use your minds and think. He says this. This is the introduction to the book. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is a huge statement. The most important thing, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is either pure or defiled as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given moment may say or do, but what he in in his deepest heart conceives God to be like. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. I'll skip down. And he says this, all the problems are heaven or earth, though they were to confront us together at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God. That he is, what he is like, and what we as mortal, mortal beings must do about him. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness, Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it, and it will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges. The most important thing about you is what you think about God, and your worship is either right or wrong, high or low, whether or not you're worshiping the God who is or a God who has been fashioned by your own imagination. And that is what is before us today. So let's read our text and let us ask, do we see the glory of God in the same way that Paul sees it here in Romans 11? Look what he says in verse 33 and following. He says there, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So I want to give you four points as we walk through this text together. Number one, notice notice first astonishment and wonder in light of God. Astonishment and wonder in light of God. Paul breaks out here in verse 33. Oh, he exclaims, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. There are two exclamations here that move Paul in worship and wonder. Again, I've already given you the summary of Romans 1 through 11, so you should be having in your mind kind of what is moving Paul here. But first, Paul is astonished by the depth of God's riches. 
He is astonished at the riches of God. Now, earlier in Romans 2, Paul spoke of the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. That God was rich in kindness, tolerance, and patience, though we did not deserve it. And then over in Romans 9, verse 23, he wrote of the riches of God's glory. And in chapter 10, of the riches which the Lord Jesus gives to any who call on him. That God richly blesses any who call on him. In Ephesians, Paul, God says, that, Paul says that God is rich in mercy. And that in the coming ages, he will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. Now the point is plain. God's riches are inexhaustible. And the gift of salvation by grace greatly enriches those who receive it. This morning, I don't care how poor you may think you are. In our congregation, we have many affluent people and we have others who are poor. But if you know Christ Jesus, you are rich for eternity. You are rich for eternity that God's riches through God's riches are inexhaustible and the gift of salvation by grace greatly enriches those who received it. It is a gift beyond measure that will be enjoyed and cherished for eternity. And Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of God. And we will never plumb the bottom of them. And then secondly, Paul is astonished by the depth of God's knowledge and wisdom that have been displayed in the gospel. Think about the gospel, that in Christ, through his, through his rejection, through his abandonment, and through his death, what looked like folly to the world, what looked like foolishness and weakness and shame was ultimately the wisdom of God at work, shaming the wise, shutting the mouth of the prideful and arrogant, and is what ultimately brought salvation to all people. That magnifies the wealth of God's grace and the magnitude of God's wisdom. Listen, God's wealth provided for us in Christ what God's wisdom had planned for all eternity. No human would have concocted this plan because by human reasoning the gospel is folly and weakness for God to bring salvation through the very judgment and abandonment of His own Son. And Paul summarizes that by saying that God's judgments are unsearchable or unfathomable as some translations say. Meaning that you cannot even measure them. There is no measuring tape in existence that can measure God's judgments. They cannot be found out. It's like a boat seeking to fathom the bottom of the ocean, but they don't have enough rope. It doesn't matter how much rope is on the boat. They will never find the bottom of this wisdom and knowledge. And Paul says here that God's ways are inscrutable. Some translations say his paths cannot be traced. Again, it's kind of like tracing footprints in the sand on the bottom of the seafloor. You just can't do it. It cannot be done. And Paul's point then is that God's wisdom, God's riches, God's knowledge, God's judgments, God's ways are incomprehensible to us. God is not like us. I read one analogy from C.S. Lewis that was, I thought was clever. It was about shellfish. 
shellfish trying to tell other shellfish what man is like, like a clam or an oyster. They're, they're getting together and they're going to talk about what man is like. One of them saw man swim by and they were confused and so they had to speak only in terms of their common experience. So he tells them that, well, a man has no shell. He's not attached to a rock. He doesn't reside in water. To help the first shellfish get the idea across, other more learned shellfish expand on those statements, and they finally conclude this way, quote, man is sort of an amorphous jelly who has no shell, existing nowhere in particular because he is not attached to a rock, and he never eats or takes nourishment because there's no water to drift it towards him. What's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion then is that man is a famished jelly existing in a dimensionless void. The problem is their limitations of understanding. And for us, in the same way, our human limit limitations keep us from rightly thinking about our infinite God. Now hear me, our minds and our language fail us when we come to this place like Paul where we ponder the greatness of God. This doesn't mean, however, that we don't know anything about God, but it does mean that we don't know anything about Him that He has not chosen to reveal to us. So there has to be an air of humility about this. The story of the Bible and the story of the Gospel is that God has chosen to condescend to us and accommodate our weakness and inabilities. He has chosen to graciously reveal himself in his word and has shown us exactly what he is like in the person of Christ Jesus. So what Paul means is that though we can and do know God as he's made himself known, we cannot fully nor ever fully exhaust the knowledge or wisdom of God. And what that should do is this should cause us before God to fall down in wonder and astonishment. Because that's all that's left. That's all that's left. Wonder and astonishment at who God is. Secondly, and after Paul makes those two exclamations, notice that he gives a humbling inquiry. He asks questions. He makes two exclamations and then he asks two questions. And here they are. In verses 34 and 35, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So Paul follows two exclamations with two questions. Now, Paul is drawing here on several Old Testament texts that should be familiar to us. Like Isaiah 40, where God says this, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Or Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or Job 41, when God confronts Job to his face and says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. The point of all of this 
is that in light of God's greatness and glory, man should be humble. We should be humble when we approach this glorious and great God because there can be no joy or worship or delight in God until God takes His rightful place as God with no rival or comparison. So what's the answer to these rhetorical questions? It's a resounding no! No! God has no need of anything a human being can supply. God has no need. We are not here today because God needs something from us. He needs nothing. No human, no man has known the mind of God. No man has been his counselor. No man has given him advice. No man has given to God that he should be repaid. So, the point in this is that we cannot allow these kinds of ideas, the wrong kinds of ideas about a needy God or a God who is begging for us to come and worship Him or is dying on the vine because He is poor and weak and needy, we can't allow those kinds of thoughts to enter our minds, to grow or to bloom, because the fruit of that kind of thinking will lead to your spiritual ruin. I mean, why worship a God that's needy? I don't need Him, He needs me. And that's a humbling place to be. And then third, Paul moves from not only this wonder and astonishment to this humbling question, and then Paul gives the theological basis or foundation of worship. Look at what he says there in verse 36. Paul concludes these two statements and these two questions with this, with this, with this one, in, in one all-encompassing statement. He says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Pay attention to every preposition there. They form the foundation of Paul's reasoning for worship. Look at them first, from Him. This means that God is the source of all things. Now everyone that exists has to make a conclusion on this eternal question. No one can escape it. Where did everything come from? Everything had to come from something. If everything came from a singularity or from a big bang, where did that come from? Where did time, space, and material come from? There has to be an explanation for them. And if we are the product of random chance and change over time, then why do we contest and why do we argue that there is purpose and meaning and beauty and truth and morality and justice and righteousness? Those things cannot arise from nothingness or chance. Let me just ask you, do we squabble? When lions decide to kill each other, when lions kill other lions and eat zebras, is that a moral issue? You see, we all have to come to a conclusion. However, if God is the source and the fountain of all things, then all of a sudden, you have a world that is filled with purpose, with meaning, with beauty, with truth, with goodness and morality. They all make sense because there's an objective, unchanging standard for those concepts. And I would tell you that you cannot escape, and our culture, no matter how much it protests, cannot escape our own intuitions of those things. Even the ag listen, 
It's as if our desires and our longings for truth, our longings for goodness, our longings for beauty are part of our very nature. That there is no person that exists that does not have an internal concept and intuition of those things. Even the agnostic and atheist have those same intuitions if they're honest. They long for justice. They love beauty. They desire justice and morality. They live with purpose and meaning. And that betrays the very foundation of that worldview if it's all purposelessness. That's what from him means. He is the source of all things. Second, Paul says, through him. And this carries the idea that God is the means by which all things continue to exist. That God sustains all of creation by his power. Paul says in Colossians that in Christ all things hold together. For from him and through him, God is the sustainer. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him means that God is the very goal for which all things were created and exist. All things are headed towards God's designed end and intended purposes. All things, according to Romans, will be made new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be a final resurrection of the dead. There will be a final judgment. There will be a day when we stand before Jesus enjoying and basking in His glory forever by His grace. God is the creator of all things. This is the foundation of worship that stems from these truths. God is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and He is the heir of all things. And this brings us finally to a glorious conclusion. Paul says in verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Here's the question. If what Paul has said is true, then who else is worthy of our worship? Who else is worthy of our adoration, praise, and devotion? Who else is worthy of every thought that crosses our minds and every beat of our heart, every, every moment our heart beats and every breath we draw in our lungs? It is God. It is God. Where should the glory go? This is the very end for which all things were created and exist. As God says in Isaiah 43, this answers the greatest question of why do we exist? Why are we here? He says in Isaiah 43, he says, Bring my children from afar, my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I, who, who, I, who are called by my name, whom I created for my glory. For the glory of God. As the Westminster Confession said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose of all of life. We eat. Hear me. This is the most practical thing you will... Understanding this is the most practical thing that you will ever understand in how you are to live and make decisions. We eat and breathe and move and act and do and love and serve and work and play, and marry, and parent, and live, and die for the glory of God. There is no other reason, or purpose, or meaning. Which is why Paul says in Colossians, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, 
You do it all for the glory of God. Now let me tell you why this matters in the gospel as I wrap this up. This is the ultimate issue in our sinfulness. The ultimate issue in our sinfulness is that sin is directly against the glory of God. It is not a matter of God flipping a coin when he gave us his word where he said, you know what, should I allow those created in my image to steal? Flip a coin. Oh, stealing is right out. No, stealing is wrong because God in his glory is provider. God is the one who provides for his people. Or should my people lie? Flip a coin. No. No, lying is wrong because God in his very nature and in his glory is truth. Should they be able to murder? No. Murder is wrong, not because God just said it was wrong one day, but because God in his nature and glory is life. He alone is the giver of life. And so, this is the ultimate issue in our sinfulness, that we have exchanged the glory of God and believed a lie that would not satisfy. Which is why, by the way, Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen what? Short of the glory of God, His holy standard. This is the issue in our sinfulness. And this is why the good news of the gospel, this is why Jesus came and died. This is why the gospel matters. Jesus died, hear me, not only to bear the wrath of God for our sins, he also died to free us from our sinful proclivities and desires to live for ourselves instead of the glory of God. And so when you come to the cross... When you repent of your sins, that means turn from those things that you wanted for yourself, in yourself, to please yourself, to be God to yourself. When you come to the cross of Christ, pride must die in you, and Christ must take the throne as Lord and King. And so when Paul contemplated that truth, that though we are rebel sinners against the very glory of God, And God mercifully chose to offer us salvation in Christ Jesus by grace through faith. When Paul contemplated that for 11 chapters, his own need of Christ and the grace of mercy that came not just to Christ and not just to the Jews, but to all of the Gentiles who have faith in Christ's name, he broke down and worshipped in wonder and awe. And let me just tell you that if that doesn't move you to worship, then there is a fundamental problem in your mind and in your heart in regards to God and in regards to the gospel and is particularly in regards to your need of Jesus. It could be that your view of God is much too small. Why worship a small God who isn't altogether lovely, altogether holy, altogether righteous, altogether glorious, and altogether worthy of worship. I'm going to pray for us here in just a second. We're going to have a time of invitation, and the first part of this is if you do not know Jesus, you are separated from God by your sin. And the the command of the gospel is to repent and believe. To take up your cross and follow Jesus by faith. 
And that comes as a moment in time for all of us where we choose to repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus. I invite you to do that today, to lay aside, all of, lay aside everything that you've lived for, your own glory and your own praise and your own purposes, and come to Christ acknowledging Him as Lord. As the publican prayed in the temple, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you're a believer and you've been living for lesser things, then we offer you repentance. Jesus says, come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow him. Maybe you need to repent. If you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. We're not perfect. We are so far from that, it's not even funny. But we're a church that seeks to live for Jesus. We're here to love God, love people, and make disciples who walk after Christ and live for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, it is our desire to have our hearts radically transformed and awakened to wonder and awe in the worship of Christ. Father, may all of our hearts exclaim with Paul today, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Father, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Father, may that be the cry of our hearts this morning. We pray this in his name alone. Amen.